Welcome to a new episode of the Weathercock Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Rod. I am so excited that you dropped by and having a listen because today is another great episode with writer Neil Smith. Now, I'm a little bit of a fanboy here because I've been following Neil for a few years and I love what he does. He's a writer translator from Montreal. He's won the Hugh McLennan Prize for Fiction and the Quebec Writers Federation First Book Prize. He has been nominated for the Journey Prize, the Sunburst Award, the Governor General's Award for Translation, and his latest novel is an amazing book called Jones, which is a tragic, comic, dark humor book about a brother and sister that have quite the upbringing, and I can't recommend it enough. We go into all kinds of conversation about creation, about the writing of Jones, about his love of translation his love of words and sentence structure, and I would say his passion in general for life and art. So this was an amazing, amazing time spent with Neil, and I'm going to invite him again in a future episode as he is just, you know, he's making arounds, he's creating so much great stuff. It's uh, very inspiring to have him on, and I hope he inspires you. The one thing that I get the I got the most out of this podcast is how artists always march to the beat of their own drums. Whether they're coaches, life coaches, they're writers or musicians, they are creators, creators of a better and the best life possible for themselves and the people that they work with. They inspire. And that is so important. And if you're someone right now that is looking to make a change, a long lasting change, then listening to a podcast like this will get you on a pathway to reflection. I'm sure of it. It'll get you thinking and maybe, just maybe, even take a, make a move, maybe take one action step towards maybe reaching out to someone or starting up on your dream, whether it's writing that novel, recording that demo, whatever it is. This is the type of conversations that I live for, and I hope you're going to enjoy it as much as I did talking to Neil. It was an honor. Okay. So I am going uh, to stop being a fanboy right here because I have one of my all-time favorite writers, Neil Smith, on the podcast, the first official professional writer on this podcast, which is what the whole Weathercock podcast is about, bringing people from all walks of life, stuff that interests me, and things that really interest me are books. You know how much I love reading books, and Neil is an amazing writer who's just put out a superb novel called Jones, which we're going to get into, but I'm just excited to have him here today and he's accepted. And I, before we go any further, I told this Neil offline before recording, but it took me months to muster up the courage to ask him to come on the show because I had a fear of rejection, a little fear that Neil would say, ah, not my thing or no, thank you. Or thanks, but no thanks. And one day it just snapped and I said, what am I playing into here? I just got to ask. And the worst thing that'll happen is just say no, but we'll still be friends. We'll still, we'll still talk to each other and text each other and send each other postcards. And, you know, that's the worst thing. And lo and behold, I send him the invitation and 10 minutes after he responds with a huge yes. So I learned a huge lesson. Never, ever, you know, hold yourself back from asking someone you admire to come on the show. You never know what you're going to get. So Neil, thank you for being here. I'm Thank going to put the fanboy in the drawer. <laughs> That's so sweet. Thank you. 
So how are you doing? You're in Montreal for the um, for the summer? Because I know you write in New York sometimes. Sometimes you say, I'm going off to New York to write. So I guess New York is an inspiration, inspirational place to write. How does that work for you? I haven't gone anywhere since COVID. So mm. um, I did travel a bit for the release of Jones, but I haven't had a vacation now. So no, I'm, I'm writing in Montreal for the summer, working on a new book. And I just finished translating a book. So um, I do both. I, as you know, I write novels and I translate novels from French into English. Oh, that's amazing. And we're going to talk about translation for sure, because that's a really interesting part. Since like you said before, we pressed record, we're both bilingual. So it's yes. a very interesting. And what I loved about Jones is the fact that you freely used French Québécois across the book. Yes. And this is a book that is published in, you know, that is, is available in the United States and whole English Canada is translated also now in Spanish and German, if I'm not mistaken, that you said yesterday. Right. Congratulations on that, by the way. It's amazing. Um, oh, French, French Francais, right? Like France, French? It's or, not in France yet, but it's in French in Quebec. French yeah. in Quebec. Yeah, exactly. I want to ask you what. Because, okay, let me let me backtrack here. There's something I read in your book. I love this part in the book. It says here, a big part, uh, the Godfather says to Eli, the States is too backward for you. But in Montreal, you can be anyone you want to be. You can be the true you. And I love it. Really resonated with me with that. And I, I want you to touch on why you use French Québécois, but this quote really resonated with me and you say you're in the Montreal for the summer. So I guess Montreal is an inspirational place and I'm guessing yeah. you can be you. Yeah. Uh, I was born in Montreal, but I left it very young, like Eli in the book. And I moved mm -hmm. to the United States when I was three years old, I think. And I, I moved to different cities. We moved every, every year, actually, we moved to a different place in the States and we lived all across the States. And then when I was a teenager, I moved back to Quebec. And I feel like Quebec for me was my, like my safe space. Uh, I had a very tumultuous upbringing with my parents and my, my um, siblings. So for me, it was an échappatoire. It was like, like my escape was coming back here. By this time, no one else in my family was living here, and I was able to sort of recreate myself, including I started writing really here. Jones, if I'm not mistaken, is loosely based on your upbringing. Yes, my last name's Smith. I didn't want it to be a memoir. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to have the freedom to make stuff up because that's what I like most about being a writer is making things up. So I took bits and pieces of my own upbringing, uh, my own family, and created these characters who are, I would say, maybe 75% us, and then the other 25 is enabled me to, uh, to create. And in my mind, it's almost like I hired actors who sort of looked like us to portray us. So when I was writing the book, in my mind, I would picture these actors and not the members of my family. And that made it easier for me to create the story um, because it's, it's a very emotional story. Uh, and I thought for me to do it, I needed a little bit of distance. I needed to create a little bit of distance from reality. And uh, so that, that's how I approached uh, creating this book. And of the books I've written, I've written three books now. 
it was the one that was the fastest to write as well. Oh, was it because it touched so close to home for you? Maybe I knew the, the story, plot. the subject. Yeah, I knew the plot already. Yeah, I was really raring to write this. I never thought I would write anything too personal. For me, writing was always a way to forget my reality and mm -hmm. uh, escape my reality and uh, enter another world of my own creation and live in that world for a while, which I which I found safer. Um, so I didn't really want to explore my own story. But at one point, I thought it would be cathartic for me mm. to do so. Uh, by this time, my parents had died. So I thought I had an opportunity to really explore uh, the very atraditional upbringing that I had um, and some of the social problems that existed in my family that you don't often read about. Uh, they don't come up in television series or in in novels that frequently. Or if they do, they're, I often feel they're not uh, written by people who have experienced the problem. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know how far you want to get into this, but the, the book is about incest as well. And yeah. I needed to talk about that in a way that was honest. Uh, and I thought it was it would be a subject matter that not a lot of people broach in fiction. Um, so that that was a challenge for me to do so, and to do it with without being overcome by the past, uh, and do it honestly as well. I read after reading the book. I, I read it as a novel, like purely fiction, right. yeah. and. Then I picked up the newsletter from a publisher in Quebec called Alto, where you were featured and there was an interview. And then you were saying that it, this was part of your life story. And I was like, what? You know, I was I just like, I just, my jaw dropped. Like, this is a real story, you know, in a certain way. Like, uh, like you said, 75, 25. But right. I was like dumbfounded that, that this was actually part of, you know, of your upbringing and stuff. And you said that, you know, the story, I guess, demanded itself to be written by you. It, yeah, it came so. to you in a. Yeah. How did that? Because you dedicate the the book to your sister at the end. Right. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful a picture of her. And I, I, did your sister have a part to play in that? In the sense that she did you want to um, uh, give her an homage in a yeah. way to to the book? Was that also part of your process of you know becoming and getting into the story and writing it? Yeah, I wanted to play homage to her, definitely. It was a tribute to her. It was a way to remember her. Um, it was a way to bring her back to life, in, in, in other words. Um, when someone dies very young, uh, their whole future is erased. And her voice is still in my head, and I thought it'd be interesting to try to create a book that played tribute to her and brought her back to life and and allowed other people to discover who she was a bit um, through through the book. And at one point in the book, Eli, the character says that he wants, he and his sister want to create a project and their project is a photography. I changed it for the book. And they said that it was a way of um, creating art out of tragedy 
uh, they talk about a, a photographer too who did that uh, uh, that they, they admired. And for me, this book was really the goal was to create art out of the tragedy of what my sister's life was. Mm. Um, and she was a very comical person. I mean, we laughed so much when we were kids and she was the one who introduced me to Saturday Night Live and let me stay up really late and watch it when I was really young. So it was, I knew that the book to be, would betray her if it was overly earnest. The book had to, include a lot of comedy too. And that might seem weird mixing comedy and tragedy in the same book, but I've always been um, drawn to art that does that, whether it be movies or books. And so I thought, even though this is about a girl who has numinate, uh, tries to commit suicide numerous times, has been abused, I had to also find the comedy in those situations because it the comedy helped helped her and me survive uh our, our, our upbringing so that was really important too and when i told my agent about the book i remembered before starting it i said it's not going to be overly earnest it's going to be obviously there'll be sad parts but there's going to be parts that people will laugh at as well hmm. so that was really really important for me hmm. Um, most of the, the critics that I've read on the book have two words that come back, tragic and darkly humor, dark humor. Yes. So they always, those two words always come back, humor yeah. and, you know, tragic. So, and it's a recurring theme because in Boo also it's tragic yes. and it's funny yeah. also at the same time. Do you feel that you kind of, that's your style a little bit is playing both worlds? You like being yeah. serious, but you don't like to take yourself too seriously or let your characters go too seriously. You want to have a laugh or two along the way? I do. And for the next book that I'm working on, I was thinking of not making it as overtly humorous, but not as, so I'm not sure. I'm in the very early stages of the book. So I uh, don't quote me on this because I might change my mind tomorrow. You have to come back on the podcast. I do want each book, because I've done three, I want them to be very separate entities. Boo, the previous novel, was much more a fantastic novel. There was fantasy elements of it. It's set uh, in a made-up heaven where 13-year-olds go only. 13-year-old Americans, if you die at age 13, in the U.S., you end up in this special heaven, which is more like a, a nationalem, a, a public housing project. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a sort of a weird version of what heaven could be, and it was completely it had magical elements, which Jones has less of. Jones, there's a there's a point in Jones where uh, Eli after his sister has died, still talks to her ashes and she responds to them. He keeps them in a, in a lunchbox. Um, so that, there was a little bit of fantasy element in there, but uh, Boo is complete fantasy uh, and magic. It was magical and maybe a little more aimed at, I would say, teenagers than Jones is. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I do want each book to be very different. And the next one, two will be much different. And the first book was a book of stories and each story in the book seemed to be somewhat different. So I like to sort of challenge myself by 
by, by doing new stuff. Wow. And is the new book geared more towards adults or is it going to be playing a little bit more back to young adults, a bit like Boo? I think it's more for adults. And even I see Jones, obviously the characters age from like five-year-old to 29. Mm. And I think teenagers too might like Jones. I agree. But it maybe uh, broaches topics that are a little more serious than what could appear in YA, although YA is expanding so much. So uh, what's YA anyways? What you, you know is it what fifteen to nineteen twenty? I mean, you can read a Brett Easton Ellis novel at eighteen years old, no problem, exactly. right? Both did, I'm sure. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's a, how the publishers look at it too. Uh, my exactly. publishers, Random House, uh, and Boo. I think they saw it as a book that would straddle both worlds, whereas Jones, they're really focusing on adult readers. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, um, Boo had a possibility of becoming a television show, right? Or were the rights did. sold? Yeah. No, did you get any news from that? It was optioned, yeah? For like four years, and then it, the project never went through. Yeah. So there's it happens a lot, I think, eh? It happens for the most. Right? Okay. With books, when you have, I had an option on my first book, too. And it was never made into a TV show. Um, and then Boo was also supposed to be a TV show. And there's someone interested in Jones as well. So, But the film industry seems more psychotic even than the book industry. So uh, not counting those chickens. Uh, I think the movie industry is all about the big blockbusters, the Transformers of the world, the Avengers, and yeah. small, independent, beautiful movies are still yeah. being made, but they're yeah. just not available. Now you can stream them. That's the uh, the advantages. Yeah. Jones can be, you know, maybe a, a, an HBO project. It could be maybe an Apple project or something, a Netflix yeah. project. It could be the many things now. The thing about Jones is uh, a young filmmaker. She's done several uh, short films and I love, love, love the tone of them. I'm not going to say her name because the project's not. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I haven't signed the deal, but um, yeah, I would be very comfortable because also Jones is a very personal story. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to sell the rights for TV or for uh, a movie, but I sat down with this woman and we really, really clicked. So, mm. and I saw her previous films and love them so i feel confident with her so we'll see though it's it's a very very long process so much more than books so yeah you'll have the time to maybe print another uh, publish another one maybe another one before it happens but one thing for sure if jones does get made it's going to be something that you're going to want to be hands-on 100 and not even if you trust someone with it have a a look and make sure that it represents what it is because it's such a personal emotional book for yourself and also like you said it's a bit about your sister and you want to her to be represented right on the screen right yeah it's awesome i want to go back to your childhood neil and i want you to tell me how did you fall into writing what was the gateway to getting into to writing you've had a difficult upbringing challenging upbringing so writing is probably like me when i was young was an escape a way to you know put my life into words and invent imaginary things and characters and i can be the superhero of all my stories how about you how was your what was your gateway into writing maybe i'd like to know what book opened the world to you and said this is 
I, I can do, I want to do this. I can write, I want to write. And tell me how you fell into it after and wrote your first short story or whatever came to you. I started writing probably very young. Uh, we moved, as I mentioned earlier, almost yearly. So I had to change schools constantly when I was growing up. And as a result, it was really hard to make friends because you would abandon them after one year. So my sister and I were closer and we used to read a lot and she'd give me books to read that were usually far beyond my reading ability. Like I remember reading about the Manson trials when I was like seven, eight years old and she was reading Helter Skelter and she was passing it to me to read and we'd read it together. Um, in school, I would, I would write stories and I would, I like illustrating too. I think you know that I, I illustrate and I would do my own BD, my own comic books and write stories and do the illustrations even when I was like seven, eight years old. And for me, it was, it was escapism. It was a way to forget what was going, the chaos around me and enter another world. And I think the most important book when I was that young, seven, eight years old for me was the Wizard of Oz series because that's so fantastic. And there were about, you know, 15 books in that series, including the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And that opened up literally other worlds for me, the world of Oz and living in another world. And the, uh, after then, when I became a little older, it was the Lord of the Rings, that series. Um, again, escapism, living in another time, a little, another world. And I've always, even when I was in junior high school in Chicago, I was in an advanced reading class, uh, advanced English class, and we were allowed to pick a project for the entire semester, just one project and work on it. And mine was to reduce the Lord of the Rings into a, a BD, into a comic book. And the three books? The, the yes. three? Yes. Okay. Daunting. Daunting. So I did, and I wish I had hung on to it because I love that project so much. But again, we moved again so many times that we weren't allowed to take stuff with us from one city to the next. Or very little, so I ended up losing the, that book. But uh, that was a project that I worked and sweated over for for months on end, and wrote and rewrote the book into a, I guess, a version for a thirteen or fourteen year olds. Uh, summed up the entire book in a comic book. So and that you, was my first. And you drew. I drew Every, everything. Yeah. Wow. So how long did it take you? It would probably, it would have be half the school a year, I would say. Mm -hmm. And it was that one project. The teacher just let us choose. There was, in the advanced reading, there were maybe, I don't know, 12 students. We all got projects and she supervised us, but she really let us fly on our own and do what wow. we wanted. So uh, that was probably the most um the experience that most uh, shaped me as a writer, a young writer, a teenage writer. Mm. Do you credit that teacher of sort of being the catalyst to what was to come? Having, you know, we, we all know how important having, I remember my English teacher uh, saying how 
I was very imaginative and my stories were really funny. My One of my passions was going in front of the class and reciting a short story. And right. it would be a horror story and I'd make it as bloody as possible and go see, push the limits to see just up to when the, my teacher would say, okay, you, you, you got to tone down. She never did that. In fact, she would encourage me to go even further because she right. was so fascinated with my imagination. Right. And I don't remember her name, but I credit her with the love of mm -hmm. writing that I have today because she said, do what you want, write what you feel. And that's where I was at at that time. I was into horror movies and I wrote little horror short stories and I'd read them in front of the class. So I really want to credit her with that, although I don't know her name. What about you? Is that did you credit that teacher with sort of I being her name either? Because we only were there for that one year. Again, uh, I remember that she, one day she brought in the book, the Amityville Horror, because she loved horror herself, and read excerpts from it. And then my sister and I read the Amityville Horror too. And it appears in Jones, if you remember, in the in one of the scenes, Abby is reading that book. That's true, yeah. Oh, so that's a little homage to your teacher. Yes, but there is in the book an homage or homage to um, the French teacher that I had. That woman in that book was my French teacher, the one that he was, uh, Eli was fell in love with when he was a teenager, because I too was in love with my French teacher. And uh, she was from Tremont, which is actually where I live now. Um, so, and she really encouraged me to learn French. Uh, she was from Montreal, as I said, originally, and she was living in Chicago and she was speaking to me in only French. And my French was already pretty good because we spent summers in Montreal. Um, but there, no one else in Chicago spoke French. So I spoke French with her and she lived nearby. And I, I, well, of course I think of her now that I, I was probably like, 13 and she was probably 25, but I think of her as like an older person, but I had such a huge crush on her. And uh, so there is a homage to her in the book too, because she comes up over and over in the book. And she, uh, she, encouraged, and she had, elle était Montréalaise, so she didn't have like some French teachers in the States have, are from France and they, ce sont des Parisiennes, ce sont, she was Montréalaise, and she spoke with the Montreal accent, and that was one that I favored coming from Montreal. Um, and she uh, she really encouraged me to to learn French, and she gave me um, books to read. Uh, I read uh, The Belle Bête uh, by Marie-Claire Blais, which comes up in Jones as well. And I tried to translate parts of it into English, even though it had already been translated. I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved that book because it was also about a really screwed up family. that um, was somewhat reflective of my own. So um, yeah, all those experiences, and you probably had the same when you were, when you were that age, 13, 14, and just starting to read more seriously and and trying to write your own stories and letting your imagination go in all different directions. Um, yeah. It's a really fertile time for kids. And I, I feel sorry for those kids who don't have those opportunities to explore their imagination. Absolutely. Um, and that's what I tried to do with Boo, really. Boo was a tribute to that period. And in Boo, uh, like the, the different parts of that heaven are named after famous books that I had read as a kid. Um, the parks are named after characters from some of the stories that I that I loved as a kid when I was 13. So that 
for a lot of people who write, I think those ages, 13, 14, 15, are really the springboard to their future writing. It's really what gets them interested in exploring different worlds and write and trying to write. As you get older, you have less opportunity if you're in another field of becoming an accountant or a dentist or a plumber. You don't really have time to, to explore your imagination as much. Yeah. So childhood is really the perfect time. And um, for the writers I know, uh, so many of them started at that period. Um, and writing seems to me, when I'm writing nowadays, it's sort of like recapturing ch one's childhood imagination. I agree so much. Um, you've resonated a lot with what you just said, and it just brings me back to the time of how curious we are when we're young and we everything is possible. And I remember I... I I believed I could be Superman when I would grow up. There was no right. limit. If I practiced and I trained hard enough, I could save the world also and get the girl, right? And this is stuff that is possible until the right. day we're told it's impossible. And then we sort of get into this wheel of life of, you know, now we have to choose a job. We have to right. go study a field. But the happiest moments of my childhood was creating, you know, creating stories and right. having a teacher. I was, you know, lucky you are too, for sure, to have someone that pushed us to become better writers, to explore our imagination more. And it just goes to show the importance of teachers mm -hmm. that yeah. could help us develop that way. Because it certainly wasn't my parents that pushed me into writing and were uh, interested in even reading what I was writing. And uh, when I wanted to, when I liked music, they were like, you know, that's not a job. That's, a, that's just a hobby. It had to be the same for you, obviously. Yeah, I would say my parents were not, were, didn't read. I don't think they read my book. And uh, so, no, they, they weren't encouraging at all on that. They, although they let me do what I wanted, though. They weren't the type of parents who, because I was the first one actually to go to university. Um, my parents didn't even go to high school. Uh, they finished in grade seven, I think. And my sister didn't go to high, didn't finish high school. Uh, so I was the first one really to, to do studies outside of high school. Um, they didn't. They weren't worried about my grades either. They didn't really care. There was it was really me who had certain interests and followed them. But to give them credit, they didn't stop me from from exploring uh, art or or books. Uh, they let me do what I wanted. Um, I remember when I was a child, when I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I was really young at this time. Maybe I was six or so. Um, I would tell people I wanted to be a fire engine, not a fireman, but a fire engine. Seriously. And people would always say, well, you can't actually be a fire engine. You know, you can be a fireman, but you can't be a fire engine. I would say, no, no, I'm going to be a fire engine. That's what I want to do. Why the fire engine? Why, I think what made you get to that? The beauty of it, the sleekness of it, the redness of it, uh, the speed of it. Um, I just, I found uh, fire engines fascinating. Awesome. You wanted to morph yourself into a, exactly. a fire fire truck. And I think so. kids who have an imagination really need to be encouraged. Uh, and that you, you know, you're not supposed to say to a kid, no, you're not going to be a fire engine. You said, yeah, you, you have to be a fire engine. Be a fire engine. And if you're going to be a fire engine when you're six, maybe by the time you're uh, 26, you'll be a writer. Mm -hmm. We both agree on that 100%. 100%. 
What was the first story that you wrote that you said to yourself, oh, this could be a thing? Or if someone read your stuff, uh, your first story or your 50th story and said, oh, there's something here. You need to go further. This is something you want to explore, maybe, quote unquote, professionally or send to a publisher. What was that story? The story I ever published, I would say, it was the first time I had tried to write fiction. I should have kept it. I think the idea is really interesting, but it wasn't at a period where I was trying to get published or thought that I wanted to publish. It was called Breaking and Entering, and it was about this woman who would break into people's houses while they're on vacation and just live in their houses and pretend that she was them. She wouldn't steal from them. She wouldn't damage their house. She just lived there. And uh, I thought it was a really interesting idea and I should try to rewrite it and I wish I'd kept it, but I ended up just doing it for fun and then throwing it out after having a friend read it. And then after that, I started to do... I just, just, was, it, was it comedy? Was it like a, a funny piece? Or no, was it more... I would say. It was darker. darker. So that tragic comic thing or yeah, already? I've, I've forgotten by now how <laughs> the tone was. That was the first piece. I just remember the title of it. Um, and after that, maybe a, a year or two went by, and I, I, because I work as a translator, and I was doing so much translation at the moment, at that time when I was in my 20s, I would accept any job that came along. Um, so I didn't have a lot of time to write. But um, by the time I was in my early 30s, I started again. And what did I write? Um, the next stories that I wrote all got published. Um, I started sending them off to literary magazines and they got published the next three that I wrote and they became, they were nominated for the journey prize, which is a Canadian prize for best short story of the year. And those those stories are collected in a publication, the Journey Prize Anthology, that comes out every year. Uh, McCall, the publisher, McClellan Stewart, puts it out every year and still does to this day. And after I had three stories in that, in that anthology, um, publishers and an agent got in touch with me to see if I had other work and whether I'd be interested in putting a story collection together. So... That's how, and at that point, I wasn't really serious about being a writer. It was, for me, it was just a, a fun pastime to do when I had a break from translating um, a report on human resources for Hydro-Quebec or something dry that I needed an escape from that. I thought, well, if I want to use my imagination again, maybe I can try writing my own stuff. Oh, so, so the stories got published and uh, an agent and uh, publishers started just to contact me to say, we really love these pieces. Do you have more? Um, and so that was encouraging. It was like a pat on the back oh. telling me, oh, maybe I could actually do this if I wanted to. And my goal at the beginning was very... Uh, Small was to, I thought, well, maybe I could get a collection of stories together and put it out with a very small press and just be happy with that. But uh, when the agent signed me, he thought that I could get a big publisher. 
So then it sort of opened up. Uh, he, he ended up getting four offers for the book and crunch my first book yeah and uh including from the rent that ran across canada and they ended up publishing it so we ended up going with them wow so things went really quickly for you i mean yeah, you, you, I, you had a natural talent i guess for writing or you had a knack for it and it automatically fell in the right hands by first of all you sending them to um, to get published to a magazine Right. But also people noticing your your talent right away, the gift that you had of being able to create. So it wasn't a long road like some oh. writers can spend fifty years writing their no. first novel and getting published. You had it a you know a, a road that was quite not less hard, but quicker to get yeah. your first publisher. And I think too that I started later. I did. I wasn't trying to get published when I was twenty two either. I was trying to make a living as a translator and mm. and I had always lived very precariously with my parents and I wanted to study income. Uh, I wanted to make money and be able to support myself. So I was working very hard doing freelance translation. I started a little freelance translation company at the time it was called Ipso Facto. And all my energy went into that in my twenties. Because um, I've been supporting myself since I was 17. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents didn't ever didn't give me money, and so I had to really work since I was 17. Um, so I got this business together, and by the time I was in my early 30s, I thought uh, it would be fun to explore my create creative side again, and that's when I started doing some some writing. But it was never take I, I was never taking it seriously until. I signed with an agent and thought, you know, this could be a way to make, to, it could be fulfilling both creatively and give me a bit of money. And so I won't have to do so much translation. I can do a little bit of both, uh, which most writers do, you know, they right. have they, they, writing, they have another job. Exactly. So, that's what I was doing. so not having any expectations, just made it so much easier for you to just put out stuff and not have, not yeah. waiting a return, not sitting with your fingers crossed, hoping no, someone will get back to you. You were just doing it for the love of creation and someone discovered you and you yeah. were just like, Oh, okay, cool. And I think too, that the fact that I waited, that I didn't start when I was 22, that I'd already written in a sense because I translated for you know, 10 years before I wrote that I knew how to put a sentence together, how mm. to be clear, a new vocabulary. So that was a, was a learning process that I uh, drew from when I started writing my own fiction. I already had a good master. I was already a master of English and French. So when I sat down to write stories, it maybe went faster than someone who was starting out when he was 22. And I still doesn't know grammar, for example. Yeah, it doesn't know the verb tenses. Exactly. So right. I knew how to put a story together. A sent I knew how to put sentences and paragraphs together. I had to learn how to do plot. That didn't pose so many so many problems. Mm -hmm. But um, I did start later than a lot of people who, you know, will spend 10 years in their 20s writing and writing and writing, throwing everything away. And then when they're 30, they'll start getting published. I sort of leapfrogged over that because I was 
doing my translation and that formed me in a, in a sense. You partly mastered your craft. Exactly. To a certain degree and we're already very capable of, you know, having a, a book that can be published easily because of your, your talent and also the fact yeah. that you put so much time into translation and learned how to put the sentence together. Are you one of those writers that once you've published a book, you can't go back and read it because you're like, oh, my God, I would change this. I would do this because you're constantly evolving as a writer, I guess. I know I, stuff I published back in the day, I look at it and I'm like, I, I can't even read a sentence. Oh, like yeah. that. Just years beyond that. That's just the practice and you know right. continuing to hone the craft of writing and getting a little bit better. What about you when you look at like even Jones, are you able to go back and read it? you know, objectively and say, oh, this is a great book. Or are you like, oh, if I could do it again, I would change this, I'd do that. I would. What's it, what's it like for you? Uh, no, I don't go back and look at the books and think I could have done better. I'm really pleased with all three of the books. However, I don't reread them either because once you publish a book and you have to market it and you have to do public readings from it, I get sick of it myself. So I'm not going to, for fun, read my own books. Um I might glance at them on occasion if I have some professional obligation to do so. But no, I don't reread my own books. And uh, But I'm happy with them. I don't look at, if I have to go back and read something, I don't think, shit, I should have done written that instead. I, I'm, I'm very pleased with my books, my three books. and uh, But I don't go back and reread them either. It's, it's called letting go, right? You sort of yeah, exactly. once it's out there, it's in other people's hands. It's out of your control, and you've yeah. done the best you could to right. to write the best book possible. Are you constantly evolving as a writer still, or do you feel that you've arrived in your style, in you know the way that you construct your sentences, your your creative thinking? Right. <laughs> I think I'm still evolving in the sense that each project is a little different. Uh, the new book that I'm working on, the, the working title as I told you before we started, is called Red Rover, Red Rover. And it's it's uh, a tribute to a writer whom I really love called Shirley Jackson, who wrote in the 50s and 60s. And I want the book to be almost written in her style. And uh, so I'm trying to mimic uh, uh, her style a bit and she's someone who because of the period the 1950s it's a little drier i would say and a little more formal than my own than say jones would be or boo um so and that's getting that's is training in itself too it's trying to create sentences that might sound as though they were written in 1958. And that by doing, for that to happen, you have to use certain vocabulary, certain uh, certain themes, uh, uh, even, even words, like something minor, like the word that and which, uh, often in her books where I would normally say that, she would say which, which is a little more formal, I would say, and it places you in that world. Even something as, as uh, minor as the word whom and who as well. And so I love reading novels and noticing the, the nitty gritty, mm. how, one, how even how she uses semicolons and how that's changed over the years. Uh, 
So I'm trying to recapture the writing style of 1958, for example. Wow. So it's a challenge and it's fun. I mean, if I had to rewrite and rewrite the same book all the time, I would not enjoy writing. For me, each one has to be a, has to be a new challenge. Boo was a challenge because it was the first time I had written a fantasy world novel. And this Jones was a challenge because it was based on my own life. It was the first time I had a lot of people write about themselves all the time. I never tried to. So that was a challenge. And this new book uh, would be a challenge because it's trying to be a tribute to a woman who wrote in 1950, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, and she wrote a lot of horror novels. You might remember the story she wrote called The Lottery. It was, a, it was taught in high school over the years. It's about a community uh, where you have to... Um, choose um each person in the community has to pick uh from a, a container i think it was a basket you have to pick a little uh, piece of paper out and if you have a paper with the a red dot on it you're stoned to death at the end Does that <laughs> you know anyway it's a famous choice. no but it sounds like a ari asker movie there the midsummer yeah. or you know yes, the witch exactly. movie it sounds like that type of movie yes, i'm sure he was inspired by shirley jackson she also wrote the haunting of hill house about a haunted house yeah that one was a netflix series right the, it was, that was yeah. a great series yeah she wrote something called uh, a novel called we've always lived in the castle which was made into a movie there's like a resurgence of love for this woman who died okay. in 1965 i think at the age of 48 she died of a heart attack very very young very tragic and um i just love her books and uh i thought you know the, jones was written about my own life what if i tried to pay tribute instead to somebody else's life mm. uh, and particularly someone else's writing life not her personal life but her writing life wow. so um i'm incorporating i'm using her and it incorporates a project that i worked on earlier and i'm just reworking it into something else i'm excited to read that yeah let's see if it works out it's in the very early stages but uh I, as you know i also translated i just finished translating a novel so. yeah yeah well let's get into translation how did i mean you started off your career with translation yeah. personally i find it honorable that you can do translation because i've translated a few documents and i can tell you right now that is it's not my thing it's not my forte it's not something that i can see and project myself to do it's not creative it's basically following word for word and trying to maybe recreate well it, it was not any novels it was more like official documents and stuff like that so it's even more boring so what attracted you to starting translations you fall into it by accident or and now you've made kind of a career out of it also because it's yeah. another part of your income is is right. translating and i know you have a love for it also now that you're translating novels and the novel Aude de Malisson that you've um, translated from french to english is an amazing novel in french i'm sure it's going to be great in english um how did this all, all this come about uh i always even as a child because i was living in the states but we would spend so much time in montreal in the summer i was always fascinated with english and french and how they, they're similar and how they're so different. And so I tried to translate even when I was a kid, really young. I would translate everything. Um, I really was fascinated in, on, with wordplay and with uh, colloquial expressions and the verbs and so and the verb tenses. So 
it was just a love of language. My love of language started really with the love of French and then moved into English, I would say. And then I started, I knew that I could make, I knew that as it became more and more bilingual, that I could make a living translating. And because I had to support myself really young, it was a really easy way for me to make money as a, as a 22-year-old. Um, and then I became interested in literature more and more and thought I should try to translate literature. Uh, as you might know, uh, translating literature doesn't pay as much as translating uh, reports for Radio Canada, for example, or subtitling or anything else. It's probably the least uh, payant of all the translation. So I didn't start it right away because I needed to make some money, but I started to translate short stories for magazines. And then I, when I finished um, Boo, I decided I wanted to translate a novel. And at the time, La Déesse des Mouchefeurs had just come out. It was making a splash. Um, I loved... I love the tone. I thought it was just a really honest portrayal of what it is to be a snarky 14-year-old. Absolutely. It's an amazing novel. Amazing novel. And I lucked out, really. I wrote to Véhicule Press, which is a small Montreal English language uh, publisher, and said, look, I'd really, I'd really love to translate this novel. And they had just started a program whereby they would be translating Québécois novels into, into English. And so within like two days, they got back to me and said, yes, we're giving you the green light. We want you to do this book. Mm. And um, I met, I did a, I did the translation. I met with Javier Peterson, who's the author. Really lovely. It was um, because it's set in Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean. They're yeah. very specific uh, expressions. People expressions that I didn't know and most of my Montreal Quebecois friends did not know either so she sat down with me and she's not bilingual um, she doesn't speak English but she could explain to me what these expressions meant and it was a really fun project because it's set in 1995 um, the, the characters are all teenagers so I had to make sure the vocabulary reflected how teenagers spoke English in 1995, mm -hmm. uh, the slang words that they would use, the insults that they throw at each other. I remember I got some friends of mine who would be around Geneviève Pedersen's age to read through their diaries and give me all their slang expressions. Seriously, wow. I would use, like uh, in La Déesse de Mouchef, one of the insults that a girl throws at another girl is... Um, a shin a bit. She calls a girl shin a bit. So I had to find something equivalent to that. And a friend of mine who was reading through a diary pulled out a slut bucket as a default that she called another girl. So I used that in the book and the translation. So, and I watched a lot of movies set in 1995, like kids, movie kids. And that period was really helpful. So I'd watch it and take notes on how they spoke. And with the new project, Haute uh, Démolition, it's about the world of comedians, stand-up mm -hmm. comics. And the characters are all around 25 years old. And again, it, and set in modern day, 
again, I have to make sure that these characters in English sound like stand-up comics would in Canada yeah. at this period. So mm. I've been watching a lot of um, YouTube videos of young stand-up comics and taking notes. Even something silly like, nowadays, do 25-year-olds say bro or do they say dude when they address each other? Mm. Questions like that that I have to check on. And I'm having a, a younger, I had this, a reader who's 27 going over my book to make sure I don't sound like an old guy trying to sound right. like a five-year-old. Right. But it's a fun, fun project. And I met Jean-Philippe, who's quite bilingual. And um, Jean-Philippe Barry-Guerin, the, the writer of, of the novel, who's written for my favorite novels ever. He's such a talented guy. He's, he's a playwright and he's an actor. Um, so we sat down together to talk about uh, because it's about comedy. Uh, there are jokes in the book, obviously, and jokes are one of the hardest things, as you know, uh, to, to translate. Uh, they don't often translate well. So he's giving me the liberty to, um, to adapt them. For the English market. Uh, at one point, one of the characters gives uh, a bad pun on stage. He says that comedians should never tell puns on stage, that it never works. And he gives a bad pun, and uh, it's a play on words that doesn't work in English. So I changed it completely. And in English, the pun, the, the pun that I'm using is the past, the present, and the future walk into a bar. It's tense. So it's you know it's a it's a sort of corny pun, but his book is written in the past, the present, and the future. And although it doesn't reflect the pun in French, it reflects the in a meta way the novel, the entire novel. So he was really happy about that. He gave it, he said, "Yeah, yeah, you can use that for sure." Hmm. So it's great working with writers. It's it's fun working with writers on their own books and. And with Geneviève, it was I had a great experience, and with Jean Philippe, so far it's been really wonderful. It's fun to, and no person reads a book as attentively as a translator. You know, you notice everything. Um, there might be a continuity error in the book that you'll pick up that no editor or copy editor will pick up, because you have to read every single word and visualize what's happening so that you can translate it into another language. So it's a huge, huge challenge. Um, sometimes I think it's even harder to, to, to translate someone else's book than to write my own. Um, I go over the text so many times. Uh, when I'm writing my own books, I know what I want to say. Mm -hmm. And I have to play around until I get it right. With a translation, sometimes it's not, it's a little ambiguous what the writer might be trying to say. Right. And right. so you don't feel as confident and so on those occasions, you have to either talk to the writer directly. Sometimes the writer is not sure what he meant either. And then you have to sort of find a, an equivalent. Mm -hmm. But I like having the flexibility of uh, adapting these works. Right. So it's not by any words, uh, pun intended, a word for word translation. A few things came up while you were talking about this, and I, I, I tell me if I'm on if, I, if I'm if I'm on the right track or not. But it sounds like you're a puzzle maker. You the book is like this 
millions of pieces of puzzle that you're trying to put together with the right words, the right thoughts, trying to make sure that you, you know, that you, you stay in the line of the author and that what he wants to project also in, in English, but you're also an invested puzzle maker. Right. That you're not just doing it as a hobby, you're actually doing it with passion and purpose yeah. that you really want to this puzzle to make sense so that when you look at it, it's like, oh my God, it's the most amazing puzzle ever. Is it? I'm not comparing it to your own writing in the sense that that is your pure creativity at work, but is translating in a certain way, it is creative work, but are you as invested into it as writing your own book and take it a bit like you were creating your own puzzle in a way, although respecting the limits of the sandbox, which is what, you know, the, the author's work. Definitely. I take it as seriously as my own novels, for sure. Um, and it's interesting that you call it puzzle making because one of my best friends is Rhonda Mullins, who's a literary translator of the GG and has been nominated several times. And that's the analogy she uses. She's always says it's like a puzzle and putting puzzle pieces into place and, and creating something. And it's, it's uh, for me, it's, it's hugely fulfilling just as much as my own work. And I like sitting down with the writers and giving them my translation and them giving me their thumbs up. So I want to please them too. Uh, and I want to please the editors uh, of these books. Um, and I want it, I want them to be a little surprised too when they read the, the translation that it's a little disconcerting because my own books have been translating to I think 10 languages. The only one that I know is, of course, French, and I go over very carefully the translation of my of my novels and my short stories, line by line, word by word, because I learn so much. Not because I'm looking for errors. My my novels are are translated by Paul um, Gagné and uh, Laurie, the late Laurie Saint Martin, who died unfortunately last year, and. Uh, I learned so much. You, I learned so much about language, uh, the differences between French and English. I learned too in the translation where there are areas where I might have simplified because Logi and Paul might have simplified a sentence somewhat. Mm -hmm. uh, the same meaning, I think to myself, I could have done that in English, but I didn't. I didn't think of it. Um, so it helps me with my own writing and with my own translations of other people's works. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's just, a, I mean, you're a bilingual guy, too. You should try it, though, sometime. Maybe a short story or something. Uh, see. It, it's a huge challenge. It might not be for you, but I find that it does feed my own work. Even though these books, both Demedition and La Déesse des and I translated a dozen short stories, sometimes not in the style at all that I write. But they always teach me a great deal about writing. Right. I mean, I have been sort of juggling with the idea of because my I published two youth books in 2020, yes. right during the pandemic, right? And I, I sent them to you. Yes. And I've been juggling with the others. A lot of people are like, can't, why don't you put, like a lot of my friends that are from all over the world, are like, why can't you have them in English? Are you going to translate them? I'm like, I've been juggling with that idea. But the thought of it is yeah, daunting yeah. to actually translate my own books. Oh. I wouldn't want to do my own stuff either, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Has <laughs> it ever crossed your mind? There was one time, one of the short stories in Bank Crunch was not translated for the for the book. 
because the, the original publisher wanted a shorter book. And I thought maybe I could try to translate it myself. And it, it was reprinted by Alto and they wanted to include. It's a novella, but we ran out of time. But I was thinking of doing it myself for the first time. I have, I write in French, I have like the essay. I wrote an essay about Laurie Saint-Martin for Alto that was published in their magazine. And I write reports in French and I live mostly in French because I live with a, a guy who speaks French. I've been speaking French for at home for, you know, for 26 years. My father was, she was married to a Francophone. So I spoke French with them. So now French is as, as important to my life as English is. So, mm. um, yeah, but they, they feed off each other, I find, the fiction languages. Are there times when, like, I my reading uh, in the last couple of years has been mostly in French. I read novels in French. I read Quebecois novels, or I, I'm reading Murakami in French at the moment. So I read more in French than I do in English. But I would say that the French that I do read helps my English writing in a way too. So it's mm. like both Did, languages help support each other. Uh, it's funny that you say that because French is so different from English. I know. And it says that, how does it help? Uh, how does French help your English in a way? I'm I curious to know. Helps, it helps me re by looking at the differences of how a novel is set up in French and English. It makes me just more aware of, of the English structure of a novel. Just the way in a, a French novel, how I can probably pull this up, how um, how dialogue is written, like the way that there's a sorry, the way that each line starts with a tiré, and the description of what is said is comes before, but in English it's not that way. That's true. That's and true. The, the tags of saying a character. Eli. Eli said pensively, for example. In French, that part would be on another line and often before. It just makes me more aware of how uh, how novels are structured, right. uh, how paragraphs are structured. Um, so, and it's a way of looking at uh, the structure differently. Even, I mean, you, you'll find this too if you read sometimes novels uh, written by non-Francophones and non-Anglophones if you're reading a Japanese author and how he or she might have put the, the novel together. It has been translated, of course, so this might have been adapted somewhat. But uh, it's all literature for me. Any book I read, anything I read, I mean, a serial box can, can inspire you and influence your writing. Um, uh, eavesdropping on conversations in cafes, whether it be French or English, actually in Montreal with the mixture of two, when people are, he parle les deux en même temps, il commence à parler en français, il fait en anglais, puis dans la l'autre sans cesse. But that's inspiring too, and they throw in English words. And uh, as I said, this new book is the Haute Médition translation is about a uh, 25-year-old, so I've been eavesdropping on 25-year-olds in, in cafes and in restaurants to see how they talk and and uh, the vocabulary they're using and how it might be similar to the way I speak and how it might be different. Hmm. Um, how weirdly certain words 
stay in, um, in, in vogue and, in, and others disappear. Like the word cool, for example, why has the word cool been cool for uh, decades and decades and never changes while, while, while other words fall out of fashion? That's true. Eh? That's true. Wow, we can go down a rabbit hole with this translation yeah. thing. It's super, super interesting. And uh, yeah, maybe you've inspired me maybe to try and translate a, a French story into English or an English yes, one into maybe French. Maybe your own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Your own stuff might be not, I mean, translating your own stuff, I, I wouldn't want to redo a book. I wouldn't want to redo Jones, for example, in French. Right. It's, it's too mm -hmm. much. You know, right. It's, you've already too invested in that project, but maybe some others... A short story that you really love. Mm -hmm. Try doing that, which is what I've done in the past too. There's an author whose book, uh, short stories, I really love, and I translated a couple of stories, and then we just put what placed one in Malahat Review. Um, that's a fun thing because it's it's not it's not your own book either, so you you might have to adjust your language a little bit. Obviously, don't pick someone's story a writer whose work you don't get and don't like <laughs> i'll be pick somebody, somebody whose book you really like. probably have to break out my ben crunch novel yes there you go there That's you go you i'll send you my french story. translation yeah, you can translate the last story <laughs> i'll do my best i'll get i'll send it to you uh, maybe not soon but eventually I'm, speaking of translation, I want to go back to Jones, and you've included French Quebecois across the, the, the storyline in, in the book. Yeah. Did this come up spontaneously in your creation process? Was this something that you knew all along it had, there would be French inside the book? And I'm also curious to know, did you get any pushback from your, your publisher, your editor, about including French, like very Quebecois in there, like not France, French, but pure Quebecois? Um, so first of all, was it something that came up to you automatically when thinking and going through your process of creating the story? And was there any pushback leaving it there and having it, you know, shine throughout the book? From the very beginning, I wanted French in the book because French for me was like an escape route and a, was my savior because I was, I was trying to reinvent myself to get away from my past. And a great way to reinvent oneself is to speak another language, right? Quand je parle français, je suis pas exactement la même personne que je suis en anglais. So, and Eli wants to escape and reinvent himself. So I knew that French would be very important to the book. As for it being Quebecois French, that was the French that I knew best. And if you know in the, in the publishing industry, Uh, there's in France, at least there used to be, maybe it's changing somewhat, they don't often like Quebecois expressions and they, they might translate them into Parisian expressions. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I was paying tribute to Quebecois French and not Parisian French. As far as pushback in English with my publisher here, uh, Random House Canada, my, my uh, editor, Pamela Murray, had lived in Quebec, loved French, uh, Quebecois French. Um, she's also the uh, editor for Kim Tui and for Nicolas Dicknard for their English translation. So she knows Quebecois French. So no, I got no pushback. She loved it. Um, 
in the, I think in my original manuscript, when I sent it to my agent, he said that sometimes I had a tendency to explain what the French meant in English. And he said to take that out. He said, that just have faith of the, the readers. If they don't know French from the context, they'll understand. So I did take some of that out before I sent it to, uh, to Random House. But no, I got no pushback from them. And in when it was translated into French, um, in fact, in the English version of the book, as you noticed, because you read the English, the French is written in Roman type, meaning the same type as the rest of the book. Not, I'm meaning not italics. Uh, I wanted the French and the English. It, it, it blends, right? Just like you're just reading the story. It doesn't sort itself out like, yeah. Withdraw you, pull you out of the story. In French, however, we had to choose, put it in italics, the stuff that was originally in French, so that the reader would know when the characters, the English characters are speaking French. Because the rest of the text is in French. Just right. to distinguish between the, the rest of the translated text of the French and the original French in the novel, they had to put it in italics. It was the only... The only solution we could come up with that wouldn't look too weird. Um, so that's what we did. And I pushed Alto, Edition Alto, and my translators, and the copywriter, and the uh, reviser to make, I, I wanted to make the French, not only the French that I used originally, but the French surrounding the text to be as Quebecois as they would allow. Hmm. Their fear often, and you probably know this from other working with other publishers in Quebec, uh, whether it's Peuplade or Edition de Tamar or uh, is that they're they're worried that their novels will not sell to France if it becomes too Quebecois, which I find is a shame. Um, mm. So I think that might be shifting in the last couple of years with Boo Boo sold to France. They ended up changing stuff in it to make it even more Parisian, even though the translation was done with the view of making it more Parisian, because it's set. It's the characters are American, and they're it's it's not set in Montreal. It's set in this imaginary world, so it didn't seem so unusual that they would speak be speaking a little more Parisian. But even despite that, malgré ça, they changed stuff in the book to make it even more. Uh, a more Parisian. I mean, obviously, things like Chandai, they don't want, they don't want Bluet, they want Pulover and Mirte, things like that. Uh, the swear words had shifted that type Yeah, of for sure. Right? Cardis, uh, yes. is, is not going to stand, but it's not going to be Parisian. Weird though, because like Boo came out in the UK and nobody in the UK said to me, oh, we're going to change the sweater to a jumper. You know, they don't mm. do that in Britain, but they do it in France still. But I'm hoping that that will change in the Latin in the next few years, that they'll be a little more open to reading Quebecois stories. Because, you know, I'll read a book set in New, in, uh, New Zealand, and there might be a vocabulary word that I don't know, but I'm, I'll look it up or I'll, get, I'll understand it from the context. I want them translating New Zealand expressions into North American English for mm. me. You know, I prefer to read the original. Yeah. So I wish that eventually 
French from France, the, the people in France will have that ouverture d'esprit to read Quebecois novels. I hope so. When I started in publishing, I was distributed by a group called Bayard that was French. And uh, I met the French um, proprietors, presidents. They all came to the Montreal Book Fair. <clears throat> it was on my second year with my publishing company. And they basically scoffed at me. Like, for them, we're not serious. We're doing this as a hobby. Mm -hmm. Real literature comes from France. Oh, it's so Québécois literature is just, it's a hobby. It's cute. Right, it's not serious, and they closed down the whole operations. I, I, you know, the, the distribution, everything. We was closed down shortly after that that fair. But when I met them, that's you know, it's not less words. That's what they told me. You know, that yeah. we weren't doing serious publishing here. But I hope it does change because there's so much amazing stuff being created in Quebec, and I've been hearing that the world, changing, but I don't know yet. Uh, we'll see. Maybe Jones will change that. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, it, published in France. We'll see. You'll the have to keep your eye out on the book. Publisher of Boo in, in France was a, a YA publisher, so they wouldn't be interested in this. Mm -hmm. But I think we're looking for another publisher for, for Jones in France. All right. Well, if it does get uh, sold, make sure you keep your eye close on the uh, on, on the yes. French Quebecois. Yes, because I wanted to like niaise and, and stuff like that that you don't hear so much in France. I wanted mm -hmm. those verbs and achalé and stuff like that. So I really push for Québécois verbs. There you go. Keep that laundry list close to you when uh, yes. the, you, you, you sign the uh, publishing rights over to, uh, to France. Um, apart from writing, translating, what else do you do? I mean, this is funny because I have this new habit of sending postcards to people that I love and just sending a, a personal note because I think there's a lost art to yeah. actually handwriting and putting a stamp and sending something to someone across right. the, the world. And what's beautiful about postcards is it takes just one stamp to go anywhere in the world. And I thought it's beautiful. So I sent you one and you send me back like 25 postcards of stuff that you're doing. And I didn't even know you were creating postcards or maybe saw it, but didn't remember. So that's like what? It's like a little hobby that you have, but you're actually, I think you're selling them too, right? Because they're beautiful. They're absolutely like little works of art that I love. And I really choose the one I'm going to send to the right person because they're just so, you know, they're, they're beautiful, but they're like little works of art that fits a personality of a person that I'm going to send it to. Yeah, I started doing that during COVID. I needed another creative outlet, and I, I'd always loved to draw. So I did a whole series of them. They're all based, the first series, they're based on famous artists. So um, actually, I've got a few here. And they're all, I love puns as well. So they're, like this one is Otto Dix. And the pun, of course, is using an otter instead of auto and, and using a famous painting of his and creating it with an otter instead of uh, the woman who was originally in the painting, a journalist. And so I got that idea and I started playing around with these ideas and I made all these cards, these postcards. And I, I made greeting cards as well. And I did 20 of them, 20 different images. Some of them are illustrations and some of them are like this one is an actual photograph of a warthog. I love that one. Andy done, Warthog. Yeah, it's done in Andy Warhol's style because he would use photographs and then color them. So I thought yeah. I'd do the same thing that he did. Um, 
So I did 20 of them, and I thought it would be fun to give them away to readers at book events because mm. they can be used as postcards. As, sorry, not only postcards, but as, uh, as bookmarks as well. So a little more personal touch of something when someone buys my book, I give them a little something else I created. So we started, I, I brought them to my book launch in Montreal at this book store called Distill, which is on the plateau, an English bookstore. And the owner of the bookstore, oh, said, you know, we could sell these as well if you want to. So we started selling them at the bookstore as well, and we give the money to a women's shelter. So oh. I, I, for the, the, um, I pay myself for the printing, and then we just give, we give all the money that we make to a women's shelter. So that was, it's been a fun little project, and I just got an order for 200 of them from somebody who had seen them as well. So it was, It's amazing. So, uh, and I've just started a new series based on book titles. Oh. Um, I've done four of them. I'll send them, I'll email them to you. The ones I would love to see that. Yet. These ones are, be- the new ones are based on found objects. Um, like I did one on Rosemary's Baby, uh, the famous book from yeah. the 60s. And I, I found at a, a junk store this old baby doll. And then I put a Rosemary, actual Rosemary, the, the herb in the baby's hands and photographed it and played around with the image. Anyways, I'll, sh- I'll send you the four I've done so far. I, but I want to do a series like that too and, and sell them or give them away. Whatever. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's, what a great cause. What a, it's, it's so good. And can people go buy them online is there do you have a place that maybe you can send me the link after that i can put on the show notes that uh, people can just click and go see what you do and if anybody would like to support an amazing cause an important cause it could be a way of supporting uh sure charity yeah so that's uh, i mean i've always loved to draw and i've always loved visuals and I've, i think my when i was just starting out in the business i thought wouldn't it be great to be a book cover designer Mm. like the perfect job and i love working with the the designers of my books um so it's just a way for me to feed my interest in in visuals that's amazing all right do you think you will eventually maybe try designing a book cover maybe not one of yours but somebody else or just put yourself out there as being hey oh my god give me a shot what I like about it now is that it's not, there's no pressure because it's all amateur. It's me doing whatever I want and doing it cheaply and I can make mistakes. I think, I don't know if I want another job or has the writing project of having to finish a novel and give it to a, to my publishing company, my agent. Um, but I really, the, the cards and the, the visuals are something that there's no pressure whatsoever. I can do it when I want to. I don't, well, I don't have any breaks if I want to. Well, you started writing with having no expectations and look at where it got you. Uh, so, you know, maybe not having any expectations with, you know, designing and creating a book cover might get you a book cover. <laughs> it's a possibility. He emailed me after seeing the cars and asked if I would do his album cover. I thought that would be fun, but... I don't know. I love that. That would be cool. Definitely. I could see your stuff being on an album cover, like a punk band from Montreal or something. I think that'd be great. Neil, it's been an amazing conversation. I could go on for hours on end and I'm going to kind of like wrap it up. 
it's just so interesting. And I want to ask you, like I do this with all my yes. guests and ask like four little questions before we yeah. go off that are off the cuff there, more in the personal growth department, but not that much because a lot of it you said today you might have answered. Okay. But my first question that I have for you is, what are you most curious to learn in the upcoming months, maybe the next year or two? Something that you want to learn, that you're curious to learn. Hmm. Curious to learn. I think it would be, as we mentioned earlier, the visual aspect. Because this is all very new to me to start drawing and, and, taking, and taking photographs as well. I started taking photos during COVID and playing around with images. And it wasn't something that I ever thought I'd be doing. And now I just I just love it. So I want to expand that. I want to explore different different arts other than I find doing the visuals, doing the postcards and uh, and taking photographs a break from writing, a break from the written word, I think. I think I've, I think I've had my fulfill of, of both translating and, and writing novels that I've had my fulfill of, of words. I would like to try something else that's artistic that doesn't revolve around words. So even though I was thinking it would be fun to learn the ukulele or something like that, some other art that I have never attempted. And that's why for me, you know, drawing and, and painting and, taking photos, they're all new avenues. So I'm curious where I might, what other artistic uh, um, uh, pastimes I might explore. Mm, that's really interesting. Ukulele, I, I, I'm on board for that. I think that's great. Trying a new instrument. That instrument. I don't know, maybe my hands will be, will be the right size. I don't know, we'll see. You won't know unless you try. Exactly. My other question is, what does it mean for you to live a fulfilled life? I think as an artist, my fulfillment comes from my art. And for people who aren't artists, I often wonder what it is that, that they find fulfilling. There are so many things that one can find fulfilling. But for me, I would be, I would lie, I'd be lying, I'd be bullshitting if I told you that my art wasn't important to me. Even stuff that I don't necessarily show to other people, just for, for me to delve into that world and my own imagination, my, my creativity is really, really important to me. And um, you know, other people, you know, sports might be important to them. And I, 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 I do sports too. I mean, I jog and I, and, uh, I, I run and I, I um, work out and, but that's, I'm not obsessed with it the way that I am with my art. Right. So, yeah. So you get your fulfillment from creation, from creating yes. art, creating things, yeah. whether it's learning a new instrument or you yeah. know, designing whether, a new postcard. And whether it's for public consumption or not, if it's just for me and maybe a few of my friends, that's fine too. It's right. Sometimes with the postcards, when I started them, it was just so, supposed to be for me and a couple of people that I show them to. And I found it uh, completely fulfilling. And uh, to the, as much as writing a story was, because mm. I find once you become a prof more professional writer, there's more pr uh, pressure to, to be excellent. When, when you're trying out something new, whether it's a new instrument or drawing or painting, there's not that pressure to excel. 
Um, so it's like a relief to try some of these new things. Yeah. I'm going to divert just one minute here, but do you feel pressure writing books now? Do you have, do you still have a fun time writing or do you feel there's eyes watching? Cause you know, that's going to an editor, it's going to an yeah. agent, it's going to a publisher. Is it still the same fun or is it a different type of fun? Maybe a different type of fun. I, it's more definitely more pressure. I do think about who's going to be looking at these pieces when I write them, which I didn't think about originally when I started writing short stories, because again, I thought, oh, it doesn't really matter. No one's going to see them. I might show, show it to a friend or two and that's it. Um, even early on when I was sending them out to magazines, I thought, well, if they don't get picked up, so what? <laughs> so I didn't want to be a writer anyway. Uh, now that I have an agent and I have an editor and I have uh, publishers in other countries too, it's a little, I do think about whether the stories will fly, not to say that I'm going to uh, censor myself in any way, but I do think about this now. Uh, is this going to work? Will this please someone? Does this idea, it has to be an idea that will please me definitely, like the new book I'm working on something I want to do. But I do think, will this be something that a publisher like Random House would be interested in? Will it sell? Yes. Yeah. It changes once you... you, you it's yeah. like, they say this for musicians, right? You have your whole life to record your first album. Yeah, exactly. And after that, it's like you, you get into the meat grind of putting another album out and getting more pressure and satisfying head honchos from the record companies and right. your fans. And it's not the same game, but there's still a way of having fun yeah, definitely. creating. But you, I think you have to take it with a grain of salt, maybe, and sort of yeah, take a step so. back when you get too serious for a moment. For a moment. Yeah, I mean, with my pro every project I've worked on, I'm really, as I said earlier, I'm really satisfied with all three books and the two translations I've done. I'm really happy with them. Um, and the projects I've been obsessed with, I think I couldn't work on a book if I wasn't obsessed with it. Mm. So no matter what I do, I'm not, if I, if I were trying to write a book, I don't know, a Harlequin romance, obviously I'm not going to be doing that. But if I were to try to, I wouldn't be interested in it and I would do a really lousy job. Mm. So it has to be something I really am enamored of mm. for me to create something that a publisher will want to put out. If I'm if I'm uh, just phoning it in, it's never going to work right. for me or for anybody else. Right. Next question. Yes. You're in a room full of young, aspiring creative writers, and it's your turn up to the microphone, and you have to deliver a sentence to inspire them give them a piece of advice, whatever it is that you have to impart on them so that you, they can maybe uncross their arms and go, what a moment. What would you say to these young writers all looking at you to impart your wisdom on them? I have had to do this. That's not such a, I don't really have to imagine it. Oh, okay. I would say the sentence I would say that would to influence them most is to read widely and to practice the writing. And the part that they often forget, maybe they forget both parts, is often younger people don't read widely. They'll, they'll have their one favorite author, but they won't read a great deal of other stuff. And I think they need influence, a lot of influences to 
to become some, someone different. I mean, to write in their own style. I, we often start by imitating other people. Create a bigger community but, and that um, everybody gets in on the Weathercock podcast. And who knows? More people that change their minds means more people are exploring, experimenting, mm-hmm. expanding their so horizons, and discovering what they truly want for their lives. I'll see you in the next episode. A lot of people you know, my age who will say to me, I really want to write a book. I want to write a novel. I want to write a novel. But they don't actually enjoy the part of sitting down and creating sentences and paragraphs and characters and plot. Uh, they, have, they might have some weird idea, but they don't know how they don't like the process yeah they like so and those people i said don't do it i mean there are other avenues that you can explore if you mm. want to be creative if you don't actually like putting sentences together it'd be insane to try to write a novel it would be like me saying oh um i love uh i love piano music but i'd really just hate sitting in front of a piano <laughs> No, obviously I'm not going to become a pianist. Mm. So, yeah, but uh, young people who are starting, I mean, I think they really have to read and write a lot. A hundred percent. I agree hundred percent with you. Last question, Neil. I have to make it a, a music and a book question because I always ask my guests because I'm a huge music nerd and I always want to know what my guests listen to, but I'm going to add one to you for you. And I want to know what are you, what are, what is your, who is your favorite band or your favorite record? It could be a record that you write to or just a record you listen to or a band. And the other thing I want to know also is can you recommend our audience two books that you've read in the last, maybe one French and one English that have, that you really like this was an amazing read so or maybe it, you can recommend or just your favorite reads also whatever you desire okay that's fun um i love that these questions about music and, and, and books um i've been i, I really like singer songwriters who tell short stories in their songs and a couple of examples would be uh, Amy Mann, who's an American uh, singer-songwriter who was nominated for an Oscar, I think, at one point because one of her songs was used in a, a film. I love her story. She, and she doesn't, she's not someone who writes only about herself. She creates characters or she writes about people she knows. And uh, she tells little stories in these songs and i think she's so so talented love her love all her work her work i think that movie could it be magnolia yes that she wrote that song there's an amazing Uh, song in that movie he the filmmaker paul what's his paul thomas anderson he his inspiration to write that book that sorry that film was her lyrics so he took a lot of her songs and moved them into this into the film Mm. And they come up over and over in the film. Um, another, this is a band uh, that writes short stories too, is Bell and Sebastian. Yeah. Uh, mm. And it's named after uh, Bédé, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or children's story, French, what can we remember? Is it a children's book? I think it's a children's book. Right. They, I love them too. I've been listening to a lot of their music lately. Uh, and on the French side, someone who does the same thing, and there's so many amazing uh, chansonniers 
in French, in France too, particularly, is Vincent de Lerme. Is, uh, mm. And his father, Philippe de Lerme, is a writer. So it's not so surprising that his short, his music tells short stories. So there are three, I guess, there are three. And three books that I've read of late that I highly recommend. Uh, what have I been reading? I'm going to give you a Quebec quote. My books, can I leave you for two seconds? Sure, absolutely. Around. Yep. bring you the books. Um, start with this one. This is a Quebecois novel that came out a couple of years ago. It's one of my wife's favorite books last year. I'm so I haven't read it yet. I haven't read it yet. Yes. And I almost translated this book, uh, oh. Jean-Christophe Riel. And the reason I did not do it, because it's rare for a publisher to come to me and say, do you want to translate a book? And this, and the publisher actually came to me, QC Fiction, and said, we'd like you to translate this book. And I had read it and loved it. I think it's my, it or Haute Médition, my favorite Québécois novels. But I was in the midst of writing Jones. I was like halfway through, and I just couldn't put that Jones aside to work on someone else's book for oh. like months. It takes you a long time to translate a novel. But it's about, and it's his own Just for our, our listeners, I said uh, the, the book's called Ce qu'on respire sur Tatooine. And in English, I guess you'd call it what? What we breathe on Tatooine? I think the English translation just uses Tatooine as the title. Tatooine? It's, okay. That's what it was called in English. It came out with another translator. Oh, it did come out as in English. Out. Oh, okay. They had asked me to do it, and I wasn't available. Right, 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 right. And else did okay. it. So I, it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's just, it's about this guy who has uh, breathing problems, ergo the title. And um, it's about his life trying to make something of himself. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick it up and read really for sure. Funny, really touching. Um, and I absolutely adored it. And okay. And for the English side, I'm going to... Suggest the Shirley, one of the Shirley Jackson novels that really inspired me. Uh, sorry, it's a book of short stories. It's called Dark Tales. And uh, she has such a twisted imagination. Uh, it's one of, I think, one of my favorite books of short stories of all time. It was wow. published after her. It was a, a collection of short stories that were put together after her death. Uh, and all her, she didn't only write dark tales, she also wrote uh, light pieces. Uh, she wrote in a wide variety of styles, but her dark tales are the ones that I love most. It was translated to, and I'll show you the translation. Her grandson, who's an illustrator, did the, uh, did the... Oh, yeah, La Lotrie. Okay. He did the cover of it. Wow, it's beautiful. That's uh, yeah, gorgeous. And he did a cover of a couple of other Anyways, and he lives in France, so there you go. Um, so the stories are just so bizarre, and and they're set in the 1950s and early 60s. And um, for her to be doing this type of work as a woman at that time, raising a family of four kids, supporting them, uh, I just find her life 
really, really fascinating and her imagination just blows me away. So she's definitely one of the, my favorite writers of all time. So Dark Tales, Shirley Jackson. Awesome. Is there a recent book, a recent author in English that you've, uh, you've read? Um, uh, only so Neil's that. going back to his, his, his bookshelf. Uh, what about... This is more recent, and she's one of my favorite authors of all time, too. Oh, I have it in my basket on Amazon. She was on the uh, Brad Easton Ellis podcast not long ago, and I just fell in love with her and Eileen. What's the story? It's about this young woman living with her father uh, in a small town, and she works at at almost a prison-like uh, where, yeah, it's a prison. And um, she she's a very, very strange woman. And she helps, another woman comes and works at the, uh, at the prison with her and they plot revenge on somebody. And it becomes more and more macabre as the story progresses. I don't want to give too much away. Uh, and it's all in this mind of this woman who's obsessed, she's quite filthy and she's not a likable character and i love when authors get you draw you into lives of unlikable people uh, mm-hmm. is like that as well and eileen is like probably the most dislikable uh narrator you can imagine and uh otesha mushfeng does is just a genius of doing this. So oh. I'd highly suggest that book. I think it's even made it to a movie, but it hasn't come out yet. Uh, she wrote another book called uh, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. That's her latest one, I think. Yeah, it's supposedly very, very good also. That's, those two are my, she's my favorite recent English language writer. Oh. I love it. So um, Heather O'Neill too is excellent. She is. Neil, it was amazing. Thank you so much for these suggestions, for your wisdom. Thank you for sharing time with me. I am I could go on for hours again. This is just such a great conversation. Um, I hope to have you again for the next yeah. release. I would love to have you again and go deeper down rabbit holes of writing and creation and stuff. But all I can say is I think our, our listeners are going to be very, very polarized by all of the words that you said today because it's such... It's so fascinating to get into a writer's head, a a creator's head, to sort of understand the process and see what goes through uh, creating a new book, a story, how you get inspired, and all the other things that you do on the side also, which is like opening up pathways of reflection for someone that might be interested in translating or creating a postcard and opening up these, these pathways of maybe trying something new. Yeah. Which is this? Po- which is what this podcast is all about. In other words, yeah, being life. and staying curious. Yeah, exactly. It's what life is about: trying something yeah. and being curious. Absolutely. Thank you, Neil. Thank Let's you, do this Bob. again soon. It was great yeah, to have you. Thank you much. Okay. Bye. If you've made it to the end, that means you have listened to the whole conversation, which probably means you really enjoyed it. And I am so grateful that you did. Please, if you want, leave a comment, follow the Weathercock podcast, share with someone you might feel would love to listen to something like this, and join the community. I'm very grateful, and I will see you in the next episode. Till then, go out, 
and stay curious.